Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two for today. Colleen Aaron will explain why she thinks a dying Bernie Madoff should get out of jail. And the psychoanalyst Jameson Webster makes a return appearance to talk about money, taboos, and left melancholy. Bernie Madoff, who ran the largest Ponzi scheme in history, is dying of kidney disease and probably has less than two years to live. He's been in federal prison for over a decade, serving a sentence of 150 years. He filed a petition for compassionate release, which the federal authorities denied, as they do 94% of all such applications. Some, maybe most people, think he deserves to die in jail, as investors who thought they were putting their money into something safe were putting their money into a rat hole. They collectively lost over $17 billion. But what is the right sentence for a crime like this? What is the right sentence for any crime? It's funny to hear people opposed to mass incarceration, even some prison abolitionists, eager to make an exception for Madoff or Roger Stone. But if we're serious about ending mass incarceration, we have to think about how to treat some seriously unpleasant people. Colleen Aran, a sociologist who teaches at William Patterson University in New Jersey, had an op-ed in the New York Times the other day, arguing that Madoff deserves his compassionate release. She's the author of Bernie Madoff and the Crisis, the Public Trial of Capitalism, published in 2017 by Stanford University Press. Colleen Aran. Why'd you write this? You wrote a book about Madoff, but what's, what's your interest in compassionate release uh, for Madoff? I use Madoff as a departure point, but... I'm really more interested in this idea of how do worst of the worst cases, how are they used in order to try to drive broader policy? I worked for about six years trying to abolish the death penalty, and um, the same arguments were made. But what about this whataboutism? What about this serial killer who murdered his children with a camera that captured everything. It's those what about worst of the worst cases that then lead to the retention of capital punishment. Um, So Bernie Madoff as an individual who's done a horrific crime, that really should be only of passing concern to the broader argument that we can't not have compassionate release for people who have served, choose a number of years, 10 years, who are dying, we should have that for everybody. And to keep it because of some person like Bernie Madoff, I think, is defeating any type of systemic change. We saw Trump just the other day uh, pardon a bunch of pretty sleazy characters for the most part. But on the other hand, you know, Rod Blagojevich trying to sell a Senate seat is pretty sleazy. But the guy did eight years. At what point do we say enough is enough? What is a reasonable sentence for even for a serious crime? I agree. And first, I should preface it by saying I disagree with the pardons because they were politically motivated and particularistic. And um, um, I disagree with also the uh, pardons that Trump made of those who are more sympathetic, like Alice Marie Johnson, because, you know, it was at the behest of celebrities. It's not that I agree with the outcome, but I agree. I disagree with um, the method and what that says. And so, yes, to your point about the eight years, you know, as Americans, I think that we just have this extraordinarily 
harsh, punitive attitude that 10 years is somehow an insignificant amount of time for a crime. It is not. It is incredibly significant. And in Europe, the uh, average time for committing homicide is about 10 to 14 years. So the fact that those on the left or liberals would be arguing for harsher punishment for white collar crimes just because we consider them to be wealthy ne'er-do-wells, which, which they are, I think misses the larger point about what do we really want criminal justice to look like? And I don't think we want 150 year sentences across the board. Yeah, that's it. It's funny that, you know, people on the right obviously take great pleasure in locking him up and throwing away the key. I mean, that's part of pretty standard right wing rhetoric. But then you see all these liberals who almost as if they want to play along with that discourse to some degree uh, and find people like whether it's Blagojevich or Roger Stone or um, or Bernie Madoff, they want to see them rot in jail and die there. Or um, Chelsea Manning, really. What do you make of this kind of punitive uh, attitude coming from a left which you know, you'd think is not supposed to be that punitive? It, it was very puzzling to me at first when I was um, looking into the, the Madoff case. And I think it's uh, a few things. As you mentioned, just to point out another example, Manafort was allegedly in solitary. It turned out that that was not true, but there was kind of support for his solitary confinement by um, people who identify as liberal. And I, I, I look to people on the left as my tribe. And so that's why I find this to be something that I have to speak out on, which motivated the, the New York Times piece. I think that it's a direct reaction to the disproportionate impact mass incarceration has had on people of color and the poor. It's a way to try to balance the karmic uh, forces, I think, of injustice, but trying to solve the problems of mass incarceration through more incarceration for just a different subset of people should not be our reaction. Yeah, well, there's this idea that the the way to... uh address inequalities in arrest and sentencing um, is to um, equalize upwards, that uh, you know the rich white guys should serve preposterous sentences too. That's not my vision of a just society. No, it's, I, and again, I think it's in direct reaction to how that has not been the case. Exactly. That does not lead to a more just society. And there's, it's, it's a paradox. So liberals typically think, if you think of the arguments liberals make against policing that it's not this bad apple, which is the typically thought of as the conservative argument, it's this bad barrel. That's the argument I've always heard, right? But when it comes to white collar offenders or wealthy offenders, it seems like the the bad barrel approach is lost and it becomes about then the individual. And in fact, there's research that I cite in my book that while conservatives are pretty consistent in their internal attribution of guilt and flaws. So in other words, when someone commits a crime, it's something intrinsic to them. It's they made the wrong choices. They're irresponsible. They have that attitude, whether you're looking at white collar crime or whether you're looking at quote unquote street crime. Liberals do a really interesting flip. They have an extrinsic view attribution of crime when it comes to people of color and people who have um, committed quote unquote street crimes, but they have an intrinsic viewpoint when it comes to um, white collar offenders or crimes of the wealthy. And I think that that 
paradox or that, um, dare I say, hypocrisy needs to be explored a little bit more because if we're going to be making systemic critiques, we have to situate these white collar offenders in their context, which is uh, which is capitalism, which is the relentless drive for profit at all costs. And I don't think that that's an analysis that is conservative or, or reactionary. I think that should be part of our left-leaning analysis. Yeah, I mean, people on the left of the spectrum will look at the causes of ordinary street crime uh, and see yeah. this is a deeply violent and polarized and racist society. And crime and cops really, you know, are very much... Uh, at the core of that whole uh, nexus of, of pathologies. But they're not really very interested in looking at the systemic causes of somebody like Bernie Madoff. Um, then you have this bad apple um, who needs to be dealt with very, very severely. Exactly. It, it, it lets the system off the hook in a way. If we just say that it was something, it was his, as I've heard again and again, how can you give a sympathetic ear to this greedy, horrible person. Uh, there's no denying, and I feel like I have to say this again and again and again and again because uh, the argument is not being heard. It is not about whether or not you know his, his crime was horrible, but if you listen to his narrative of how he, the crime took place in the context of the relentless drive to constantly pursue more profit, of having to take enormous risks in the sums of hundreds of millions every day, it makes sense that he could have committed that crime as part of what was going on in a, a very mundane context within the system. Yeah, I remember back during the Enron days, I uh, saw Larry Kudlow on CNBC. Larry Kudlow, of course, big cheerleader for capitalism. But he was just vicious. He wanted to see the Enron guys put away for forever. You know, he wanted to see them in leg irons. <laughs> and I scratched my head for a moment, like, why does Larry Kudlow feel so passionate about this? And it struck me that he really wants to emphasize the bad apples defense of capitalism. You know, if you get rid of these bad guys, the rest of the system is, is beautiful. But I don't understand why that kind of spreads people on the left. What um, function you know, did Bernie Madoff serve in the, in, the, in the popular imagination? You wrote a book about this. What function did he serve for our, our larger relation uh, to the forces that uh, produced him? Right. Well, you know, let's remember that Madoff took place um, right at the end of 2008, um, right at the during the, the heart of the, the financial crisis, where you didn't see a single person go to prison for any of the bad activity uh, that caused the crisis, right? Murdy Madoff had nothing to do with collateralized debt obligations or bad mortgages, predatory lending, any of that. But there he was um, in the midst of this, this story of larger forces run amok. And um, because he was tied to Wall Street, he became kind of the poster child for for that greed and that that's those systemic problems. And so I think it allowed for us to deal with him and then have have an easier conscience about letting the system go on as it had. Um, so broader issues like um, regulation and social inequality and greed were talked about through the Madoff case, but it became really confined to that individual and um, never really made it past that. And I thought, honestly, that by now, 12 years later, that we'd have a little bit more perspective on the role Madoff served as a type of, and I use this word very carefully because Madoff did commit a crime that led to the losses of $17 billion, but he became a kind of scapegoat, not for that crime, but for the crimes that went unpunished. 
and hardly anybody really went to jail for the financial crisis. And uh, I think there's that little bank in Chinatown, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes, Abacus, uh, and, and yes, and that that was very tangentially tangentially related. No, you didn't have any prosecutions. And then you know, two three years later, it turns out HSBC is laundering eight hundred million dollars for a Sinaloa drug cartel, and no one goes to prison, no one is fired, no one loses much of their bonus. But Madoff is serving this 150-year sentence for an individual crime because, you know, HSBC might be too big to jail, but this one individual was, was not. You are unable to interview Madoff, I guess. The prison authorities wouldn't permit it. The prison authorities wouldn't permit an in-person interview, but I spoke to him over the phone, um, interviewed him over the phone. I also have 110, 120, something like that, emails and letters through the closed prison system. So I interviewed him those ways. And uh, how did he see what he did? How did he um, explain himself? He explained it as having occurred because at one point in the late 80s, and I, I state this as his narrative, not as something, but I have to be very careful that, that I necessarily believe. But um, at the end of the 80s, he could not make the trades that he needed to in order to garner the profits that some of the larger investors wanted. And the recession that happened at the end of the late 80s, early 90s never rectified itself. And so the Ponzi scheme began as a result of that that pressure to get back into the market, to get back to making the money. Um, he had been adulated as this wizard of the market. Um, he had very high profile, high net worth clients who were not, of course, the vast majority of his of his victims who kept pressuring him. And so he says he was able to do that initial shorting of his strategy because he had become so used to taking large risky bets. Um, in the market. Um, and so according to his narrative, it was never his intent to get into this. It wasn't the business was, was not created as a fraud, which is a contested thing. But he says that um, it was because he could not make the um, the trade to make profits and it got caught up in a kind of spiral with the recession. And of course, as you know, then when <laughs> losses keep accruing, he kept having to dig himself further into a hole and ultimately was never able to extract himself. I want to point out one thing, which is some of the criticism that's been leveled at me points at the the scale of the offense. Well, the 150 years is necessary because of the scale of the offense. The scale was huge. However, he was investigated beginning in the early 90s by the authorities, um, by the SEC, and was investigated between five and seven times. So the, the scale was because it metastasized because he was not policed correctly. So we have to take the, these things, these larger systemic issues into consideration when looking at how it was able to get that big. I'm speaking with the sociologist Colleen Aaron. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the whole approach to financial regulation from the early 80s onwards. You know, yes. Light yes. touch, look the other way, let the market go because, you know, the market is wise. He thrived in, in, in a culture that um, was not supposed to permit that kind of criminality. But on the other hand, um, the, the, the borderline between outright criminality and normal practice isn't always right. sharp. <laughs> it's a very gray area. But the outright criminality that was present in his fraud was overlooked because, as you say, the SEC had been steadily defunded, relatively speaking, um, over beginning in the in the early 80s. 
I look at a guy like Madoff and I think of these private equity guys who load up companies with debt, take out billions of dollars and then leave the companies for dead. You know, they do a lot of damage. They, like, they leave these companies bankrupt. We've seen a whole lot of them in the retail industry over the last several years. People are unemployed. Uh, you know, they default in their loans and uh, the private equity guys make off with tons of money. That's legal. Yeah, that's completely legal. And it's not being pointed at what kind of sentence would that merit, right? If we were if we were thinking that in terms of the harm cause. And I think we should really maybe be also focusing on, yes, legality is not always the marker of morality or ethics. Um, so if we're looking at the harm done um, systemically, we have to look beyond crimes like Madoff's. Um, but even if something is criminal, I mentioned HSBC, but also the rigging of LIBOR. That had arguably a much more profound systemic impact in terms of um, absolute dollar losses to a wider group of people. But nobody knows about LIBOR because it's it's more anonymous. It's more sh- shrouded in secrecy and is boring than this, you know, very sexy story of this this New York criminal. I remember reading a uh, a story in the Wall Street Journal shortly after Madoff went to prison uh, and uh, said his fellow prisoners revered him as the uh, a great artist and master of his trade. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're they're actually according to uh, Fishman's account, you know, allowing him to run the hot chocolate business and giving and also um, to giving them advice about their funds. So it, it's kind of bizarre, but I think Madoff's that that speaks to celebrity culture and how. Madoff's infamy, in a way, makes him this larger-than-life figure who is beyond our consideration for humanity. This goes back to something we were talking about earlier, but you said that your critics say that, well, 150 years seems proportionate to his crimes. I don't understand the math. How do you figure that out? Why is 150 years for a guy who's like 70 proportionate to his crimes? I mean, the idea is he should die in jail. Yes, exactly. Interestingly, for my book, when I was interviewing the um, the non-U.S. based journalists, they thought this sentence was preposterous. What does that mean to give someone a hundred, you know, this Methuselah kind of kind of sentence? So Denny Chin said, you know, the sentencing judge said that this was not only about Madoff's crime, which was very interesting. He said, we're sending a larger message during a time of crisis that that this level of greed is not permissible. And so what he did is for each of the 11 charges, he maxed out the amount of time for for each of them. So that's how you arrived at it. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. It's effectively a life sentence. And for those of us who are against life without parole, um, as a matter of principle, this is where I come back to this idea of principle. You can't have one set of rules for the worst of the worst, even if they're white collar offenders and one set of rules for everybody else, life without parole should be abolished across the board. And that includes 150 year sentences for Madoff. What's interesting that uh, the judge said we're sending a message that this kind of greed is not tolerable. But on the other hand, you know, the rest of it is okay. (laughs) That's the other side of the message. Keep your, that's exact. Keep the blinkers on. Here's this guy. They must have been so relieved, right? There he is. Is this feeling of relief that that we can finally assign blame to to one individual? But and 150 years really became a way of expressing that collective collective anger. And you can understand, of course, the collective anger, but it's being improperly channeled. And I think that the way in which it was 
not an effective sentence can be furthermore seen in, um, I cited a statistic um, in that the op-ed that Ponzi schemes, there have been more Ponzi scheme prosecutions in the past 10 years after Madoff's sentencing than in the 10 years prior. So if this really was about sending a message, if this really was about deterrence, then it miserably failed. It's interesting, criminologists often, um, especially those on the left, don't like to ascribe this type of rigid rational choice theory to crime commission. You know, other things are involved besides socioeconomic inequality. You also have emotion, you have anger, you have all these things. It's just so interesting to me that white collar offenders are seen as like the only subset of those who have committed crimes who op- who they see as operating out of a completely rationalistic cost-benefit greed analysis. And now finally, um, this is uh, now your current topic of research, so it's a little early to probe too deeply. But there is this weird alliance now, left-right alliance and criminal justice reform, the Koch Network. We've seen uh, Van Jones wearing a purple tie and buddying up with the chief counsel of the Koch uh, Network uh, on criminal justice reform, you know, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian. Yes, and, and Super Bowl ads featuring criminal justice reform at the same time that um, Trump is praising Duterte for his his uh, extrajudicial killings of drug offenders. It's a very interesting time we're living <laughs> But um, what's going on with this? Uh, You said like hedge fund guys are also supporting criminal justice reform. What's going on with this interest coming from a quarter that one used to think of as not particularly interested in the topic? It's become steadily the new sexy. And part of the um, part of the book is going to be looking at the ways looking at this from a social movements perspective. So you have these right left coalitions, but you also have celebrities. You have um, philanthropists, you have hedge fund guys. Kim Kardashian, but also, of course, grassroots who have been on the ground doing um, doing work for decades on this. You have abolitionists who are on the ground. So the book is going to be looking at how criminal justice reform is being contested as a claim. What are the demands? How are these organizations working together? And um, this, the central question that I'm asking is, what is this all about? And um, very preliminarily, because I just started jumping into it, but I think it's a it's a combination of things, including the fact that we finally see mass incarceration starting to touch everybody, including the white middle class. So, you know, the opioid crisis is no small part of it. You also have more attention brought to it by Black Lives Matter, by Michelle Alexander. So across the political spectrum, I think everyone has an interest in seeing um, some type of reform, but what it looks like and whose claims are going to be loudest and how those get to be articulated is is going to, I will see how that comes out in the narrative in the next year and a half. And I know I said finally, but I have one more. You mentioned Michelle Alexander and her book focuses on nonviolent drug offenders. Yes, and yes, a lot yes. of people who talk about criminal justice reform look at nonviolent drug offenders, you know, somebody with a bag of weed, basically. Now that is not the uh, the modal prisoner by any means. You know, an awful lot of people in prison have committed serious violent or property crimes. If we're going to get serious about criminal justice reform, we have to be able to accept the fact that some people who've done odious things should not spend their entire lives in jail, right? That was the central thrust, too, of the, the, the op-ed that I, that I wrote, that we're going to have to get comfortable with letting people who have done some unsavory even despicable things, 
out of prison if we really want to confront mass incarceration. Because as you said, yeah, the, the number of nonviolent, non-repeat um, people who are incarcerated is very low. We have 700,000 people in prison, um, in state prisons, who have committed um, violent offenses, including homicide, including sex offenses. So how will we, especially on the left, start dealing with, especially now in Me Too, <laughs> how do we reconcile these two things? We want to end mass incarceration, but how do we feel about shortening the sentences of people who are convicted of rape or murder? That's a lot more difficult conversation to have. And I think that's why some of the reaction to um, the Madoff piece, that it's very easy, very politically convenient to say, let's deal with the low-hanging fruit first. We have lots of people entangled for bullshit drug offenses. That will only get us so far. It will only get us 250,000 out of 2.3 million people out. We've got to think deeper. We've got to um, be more profound in the way we're talking about systemic change and get the heck off of individual offenders. That was Colleen Aren, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at William Patterson University in New Jersey, and author of Bernie Madoff and the Crisis, The Public Trial of Capitalism, published in 2017 by Stanford University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the sonata Kirkpatrick 388 by Domenico Scarlatti, performed by Scott Ross. You can find his complete performance of the Scarlatti sonatas, which are some of my favorite things in the world, on YouTube. Next, a psychoanalytic turn. Jameson Webster was on this show a bit over a year ago to talk about the problems with psychiatric drugs. She's back to talk about money and left melancholy, two subjects she addressed in an excellent interview with the novelist Fiona Allison Duncan in the White Review, an arts and literature magazine with an active web presence. What Webster said on those topics was fascinating, and I wanted to hear more. Jameson Webster. Money is um, obviously one of the central organizing principles of capitalist society. It occupies a, a very large portion of American society in particular, but we don't talk about it very much. We don't. What's the taboo around money? I don't know what it is. There's very sort of classical psychoanalytic answers that in the same way in which we're very discreet about our toileting habits, we are equally discreet about our money habits. And if talking about yeah, sex at this point... Yeah, of money equals feces. Money equals feces. I, I can't use the proper word because the FCC wouldn't like it, but, uh, right. Right. but everyone knows what I mean. That is extremely taboo subject. So um, money inherits some of that? Yeah, I think so, because it's about, you know, what you're accumulating, where you're putting it, 
how often you check on it, um, how much you feel like you're losing it, whether you think that it's coming out the way that you wanted it to come out for you, whether it's producing what it's supposed to produce for you. But that's something we expel and flush away, whereas money is something we want to accumulate. Well, Freud's whole kind of feces money equivalence was to say that we don't want to flush it away. And that, you know, in the psychosexual stages of development in orality, it's the demand of the person to the other. So the child wants to be fed, wants the breast, screams for the breast, that that there's a kind of oral way in which we ask the other to give us something, to feed us, to provide us with whatever, soothing, nurturance, nutrients. And that anality is a flip in this relationship. That anality is the moment that the world asks you to do something with your body rather than asking the, the world, the body, to give you something. The world asks us to do something with our body. And, you know, they say this thing that you might like to hang on to, play with, sit in, go when you want to. You have to do it at a specific time in a specific place that mommy really wants you to do this. And she'll be very proud of you. And this is how you become like a big boy and girl in the world. And that for Freud, he said this was a, this was a, a demand that the child renounce a certain kind of pleasure, the pleasure to just do whatever, whenever you want to. And that there's a and then retention becomes a kind of power. Yes. For an otherwise powerless infant. Right. Absolutely. Because you're refusing to do what the other is asking of you. I once saw a photo of Soviet toilet training, which had <laughs> 10 or 20 kids lined up on potties. Uh-huh. So it was done socially. Right. Not in the privacy of the, the mother, infant, or mother, baby, child, uh-huh. in a private bathroom. I just wondered what that did to the personality, how that created Homo Sovieticus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, getting these things out of the neurotic family home would probably be good. But still, there's the question of how you, you know, if maybe if you see all the others doing it, you're less likely to feel so assaulted by this demand and want to hold on to everything for yourself, for certain. Yeah, but then how does that, uh, that infantile uh, power relation then get transferred onto money? I mean, Freud is making these very ancient equivalences, which he said that he found in anthropology and he found in stories more generally of the word that we can't say into gold, but also the gift. So the to, to do this for your mother, who says, put the feces in the toilet, be a good boy and girl, that it's a gift. It's the first gift. So the gift of your body to the mother. And that this is where the link is between money and feces. I keep having to avoid the word. Leave it out. So the most disparaged thing now somehow becomes equivalent to this highly valued thing. Right. Absolutely. That's not uncommon in human mental activity. Yeah. The equivalence of opposites. Yeah. Who is it? Francie who said that gold is odorless, dehydrated filth, which has been made to shine, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that... Um, but we're a long way now from gold. We are. Uh, we are. And... In my own amateur psychoanalysis of money, which I'd be too embarrassed to show to you now, but it's, um, I was thinking that there's some equivalent of gold in the patriarchal family, mm-hmm. that kind of discipline and austerity and denial, mm-hmm. which the gold standard imposes. And now money is just a creature of the state. It's pure convention. There's nothing. It's not backed in any sense by anything material. What does that do to the psychology of money? And at the same time, the patriarchal family is deteriorating. It's deteriorating. What does this do to how we think and feel about money? I think it's incredibly disorienting. 
Why? I mean, I think this period of time or this age that we're in is one in which um, it's dematerialized. So we don't even know what we have to a certain extent. But it doesn't mean that there aren't very concrete, I think, behaviors that people have around money and have learned from their families. I mean, in some way, you have to have an encounter with your family and their relationship to money, which is a huge inheritance. And this is what... Um, I find it's very difficult to get my patients to to speak about. It feels in the same Are way. they more open about sex than money? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They can talk about their sexual habits, their masturbatory habits, but somehow the strange relationships that they have with money, how they hoard it, how they don't want to give it away, who they feel is stealing from them, they're keeping track of their parents' money and what their parents are doing with their money I and mean, these kinds of things, or watching their partners with children. Um, these are very hard to, to, to get at. I once heard a uh, psychoanalyst say that everything uh, of importance in the analytic relationship comes out around the fee. Yeah. Do you find that? Yes, yes. And it's one of the few tools that we have in some way to kind of push the patient a little bit is to raise the fee or lower the fee and see the reactions that they have, which are massive how they pay you, when they don't pay you, um, when you bring up that they haven't paid you, and how all of this is negotiated is some way in which we try to get at, at these questions. What's at stake there? Why is it so, uh, so powerful? I really is the question about the exchange between two people, this, this gift, right? Like, what is it that we're giving to one another? And it gets concretized somehow in the money. Like, you didn't give me what I wanted you to give me, so why am I going to pay you for that? as opposed to the idea that we had an agreement, right? We had an agreement and we're still in the middle of working on something. Tell me more about what you think you're not getting from me. But all of these petty grievances and all, I mean, you know, petty in some sense because it, it comes out around money, but not petty in the deeper sense of like the, the pain that the person feels that's getting expressed in this quote unquote petty way. So all of our sort of demands for love and demands for satisfaction, I think, can be channeled into the exchange of money. And then uh, you mentioned the family and Engel's theory of the, you know, the origin of the, the bourgeois family. It's, it's all about the transmission of property. Right. That's another one of these things that we don't really like to talk about. People don't want to talk about the family finances, right. like how much you've inherited or not inherited, uh -huh. you know, whether you're in debt. or it, It's just that too, um, that, that, that family is such a site of taboo. And how much these inheritances affect our children. I mean, it kind of gets displaced into these questions of like the inheritance tax. We see with patients all the time that, that the the gift of money from the family is a very poisonous gift. I just love the fact that gift is a German word for poison. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that pun, but, you know, the gift is really, um, it's fraud. Right. Debt and guilt are also the same word. In, yeah. Which yeah. is incredible. So, I mean, like somehow the German relationship to the money. The Germans have a gift for this sort of thing, yeah. yes. <laughs> Back to this credit phenomenon, at least until the financial crisis of 2007-8. There was a sense in which credit money was like unlimited right. and that all that, the guilty sadomasochism of the anus that was around the gold standard and the old patriarchal family where they came together seemed lifted, at least temporarily. Uh, there's this credit money it just seemed bottomless. Apparently, if you like, it used to be, I don't know if this is still true, but even if you just put the logo of a credit card on an order form, people would spend more money mm -hmm. because it seemed like free money. I don't know if that's come undone in the last 10 years or not, but... Yeah, this credit money, this sense of entitlement of, like, I can just, I want it. It's free. I can buy it on credit. What does that do to uh, money, the, the psychology of money? I think that the old structures are just more buried. 
So while you can pretend that it's free, somewhere you know that it's not free. And that's even more terrifying because you don't know when the cost is going to hit you. And you spend a lot more time <laughs> trying to hide from something. I mean, this is my, my feeling is that, that, you know, we might spend more wildly, which I certainly think is the case, but we're terrified. We're terrified as to when, you know, when, when the banker is going to sort of call in the debt. And I think this problem of never getting out of debt, never understanding where you pay the debt off, not even understanding the, the depth of the debt has huge ramifications on one's character. I mean, in psychoanalysis, there's an idea that you accept the fundamental debt of having been born, that, you know, subjectivity, that the, to, to be a human in the world is to, to be in debt, to be in debt to the people who gave birth to you, to be in debt to the others in the, in the world. That could be very annoying. It's very annoying. It's very, very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we don't, we don't like that. And the question of money, I think, is a way of trying to handle that question that we have about the relationship to others. And Freud had a funny thing with Marx, which was that he he said that he thought that the idea that we could sort of abolish money or abolish private property was an illusion. But simply, I think, because for Freud, he felt like we really we are hostile to our neighbors. And part of having private property is the manifestation of this hostility. And he didn't see this going anywhere. Workers of the world unite. There's something erotic about that. Right. That doesn't uh, take account of the fact that we also view others as a threat. Right. And especially in a society where we're, where we're trained to view each other as competition for scarce resources, it's kind of hard to work out solidarity. He did have some idea, though, in civilization and its discontents. He had this idea that, that these kind of broad ways in which society handles human beings, whether it's how we <laughs> set up in the institution of money or whether it's the sort of moral and religious edicts. He really was not happy with the love thy neighbor as thyself because he thought nobody loves anyone as themselves. <laughs> Sometimes uh, we don't love ourselves very well. Right. <laughs> but that somehow what the world, he, or what he wanted civilization to recognize was how pleasure operates and that it could adjust itself to what could be specific about the way a certain person's pleasure operates in difference to another person's pleasure and also take into account how things circulate, how pleasure is its own economy and try to adapt itself to this for the better rather than either abuse it, which is what capitalism does. It uses kind of our pleasure-unpleasure mechanisms and makes us spend that we could understand this better and we could develop a different kind of world that way. I don't know what that world would look like, however. <laughs> Money is also, I mean, getting out of the realm of the, uh, of the child on the toilet. The, um, it's a form of social discipline. Antonio Negri, in one of his more lucid moments, said that uh, money has one face, that of the boss. Mm -hmm. There's that boss aspect of money, the power aspect of money, that um, work or die. Is that also a, a part of the taboo? We don't want to admit to that social power? The, the pleasure and the power that we're getting out of the idea? Of... No, also the subordination involved in money. Oh, you know, sure. You know, absolutely. You're subordinate to people who have more of it than you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think even the question of tending to one's bank accounts let's say, is a way of pretending that, the, that you're not subordinated already, always already in relationship to the money, that you're pretending that you have some control or that you're, you know, producing so and, you know, such and such amounts of interest as opposed to the fact that this, this thing is um, something that completely subordinates you in general. Well, I think they're cranks, but there are schools of, of, of economics that, that hold that uh, if you fix the money system, everything else will fall into place. Mm -hmm. Like free money, just run the printing presses or 
0% interest rates. What kind of view of money can produce that, that, that kind of magical thought about just changing the medium will change all the social relations? <laughs> Again, it's I mean it's a little like Freud saying that he thought that Marx's idea had a sort of a magical thinking about it. The question for psychoanalysis is how do how do we make this money circulate more? So I think with the kind of credit sort of late financialization of capital, we feel like the money's moving everywhere. We have this sort of global world, but actually it's not. It, it's it's very much in the hands of a few people. It's not really circulating. So I would imagine that the fantasy of just changing the currency or even like everyone was obsessed with um, what's this new currency, like Internet currency. Oh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. and all those cryptos, <laughs> right. yes, cryptos. and their strange algorithms. Right. I, mean, I think they have this fantasy that that's going to get things circulating in the ways in which we're more and more stuck. I mean, the money is more and more driven into the hands of a few, which means that it's not moving around, right? It's not being reinvested into whatever, social structures, education, so on and so forth. It's, um, it's really staying in one place. Fixing the symptom, but not the disease. Right. I'm speaking with the psychoanalyst, Jameson Webster. I want to shift a bit to uh, this interview you did uh, with the White Review about uh, left melancholy. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting concept. Um, what is it about left melancholy? You said Lacan called melancholy a moral cowardice. He did, yeah. What does that mean? People got really angry at Lacan for calling um, melancholy a moral cowardice. But for him, what it meant was that the melancholic person um, has the capacity to see things that we otherwise don't want to see, whether it's the reality of death or the reality of suffering, that they're very, very close to that. And, and there's that cliche that depressed people have a more accurate viewpoint on Viewpoint of things, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you need necessary illusions to keep plugging on in this right. doomed life of ours. Right. But he felt that their, their rage and their kind of self-implosion in relationship to seeing the truth was the cowardice, that they didn't then use the truth to want to do something about it, to really sort of see then where it is that we can contribute some change. So they just sit in the dark and the dark. feel sorry for themselves. They feel sorry for themselves and they feel really upset that things are the way that they are. Or take it out on the people around them. Right. Take it out. You know, Freud said that they're very noisy. Yeah. <laughs> Complaining. <laughs> they, make a, they make a nuisance of themselves. Yeah. yeah. So that, that failure to act in a transformative way is what right. was cowardice. What about the... Uh, there's a left melancholy. What's the angle on the left uh, melancholy? I have this feeling amongst the left that on the one hand, while they, they feel sort of right, and maybe that in and of itself is part of the problem that the melancholic person has a kind of jouissance of being right, and that nevertheless isn't acting to change anything. And there's something so unbelievably stuck about the party. I mean, even this last fiasco with the Iowa caucus, you just go like, <laughs> oh my God. And, you know, the the question for Freud at bottom for melancholia was that, like, even no matter what you see or what you see is wrong in the world, it doesn't mean that you know what you want. You're not, the melancholic is not speaking from a place of desire, from like, this is what I want. And if you take the party as a whole, it seems to have no idea what it wants. That's the Democratic Party, which is... Not exactly the left. That's true. The far left, there's um, this long-standing guilt about power yeah. and a desire to be pure yeah, and a desire to be right rather than take power. Yeah. Is this related to that melancholy you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah. There's something about wanting to bemoan the power of others rather than seize power in a way that potentially makes you the one who's guilty and has to own up to your own act which every act, psychoanalytically speaking, is never pure, and that you have to sort of take up the consequences of what it is that you've decided to do 
get married, get divorced, so on and so forth. <laughs> Seize power, uh, make certain decisions. There's something in the in the left that that at the moment that power is a question. It, I think it it puts its hands up in the air. Is this something a, a psychopathology that draws people to the left, or is this sort of a conjunctional thing we can get out of? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, that's a really difficult question. I think that there's um, the kind of maybe the the narcissism of altruism <laughs> that maybe draws people to the left. That Lacan interestingly said was a real real problem. That if you don't understand how you're getting off on your own idea of the good that you think that you are, you're never really going to be able to act. Right? It's always going to make you lose. Um, it's going to lose your place. This impeachment melodrama is interesting in that you know, the Democrats were knew it was going to lose, uh-huh. and they pursued this thing anyway. And they're facing this ruthless party, Republican Party, which is extremely disciplined doesn't give a damn about procedure or norms or anything. They just want power. And the Democrats, who are not terribly left, but they still have this notion that it was the right thing to do, it's the principal thing to do, um, which paralyzes you in politics if you're that concerned about being pure. Is Nancy Pelosi some kind of melancholic too? (laughs) I mean, she's pretty tough. She's tough. She's tough. But yeah, there's something. I mean, even everyone was celebrating this moment of her ripping up the the state of the union well yeah that was a kind of symbolic violence but in a moment of absolute defeat right, yeah but then people cheered it on what what what's what's that about that's all that we have left is to rip up these pieces of paper in defiance against all of these actions that are being taken do you see this amazing moment in the state of the union when the little astronaut boy said uh, trump was praising him for saying that while everyone looks up at the stars he can't wait to look down on the world Oh, I didn't hear that. <laughs> it was kind of amazing. Wow. It was like, for me, it's like the psychoanalytic moment. You know, the here Trump it said is. that? Trump was praising this little boy who they were going to give like an astronaut scholarship to for wanting to be an astronaut. And he says he, he said that from the beginning of time, he knew that while everyone else was looking up at the stars, he wanted to look down on the world. Wow. And then like started clapping. And I thought, this is... This is it. Like, this is, this is the truth of the state of the union. <laughs> the will to power. Yeah. Also, in, in this interview, you're talking about the, the, the left's lack of energy for invention. Yeah. And there's a death of the utopian impulse. What happened? I mean, revolution seems like a word that's, that now belongs to the, to the right. And um, strangely, I was, I was reading surrealist manifestos from the 1920s through the 40s and 50s. And so many of their ideas of... Um, changing our relationship to reality, surreality, um, the importance of like making violence visible, like seizing power and control in a way that shows you the way power and control is. I mean, just all of these manifestos, I thought all of this is exactly what the right was doing. And there couldn't have been anything more left, left, left about the, you know, the sort of surrealist movement. And all of their strategies have been used by the right. It was kind of incredible. And reading this in terms of what they imagined for the aesthetic and kind of political overhaul of the world in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and their idea of just radical inventiveness. I thought this doesn't exist anywhere in leftist discourse, leftist politics of all sort of varieties. I I don't know where that energy went. It's completely gone. There was a a reticence or a shyness about utopian schemes. came to the fore in the 80s something authoritarian about it, something Leninist about it. It would end in the gulag. Um, so that um, 
anything that got too dreamy was somehow uh, going to end in um, imprisonment and death. Right. Like what? What? How do you produce that kind of pathway from utopian dreaming uh, to the gulag? But don't you think it's kind of the aftermath of disappointment that there was a moment in which I think, you know, my sense was that people really believed that things were going to change at a certain moment. Like we really believed that. Maybe too much so. And now we're too ashamed to believe anymore because we see how wrong those beliefs were to a certain extent, only insofar as they thought that it was going to happen now. You know, the communist revolution is right around the corner. You know, these guys' time is up any second now. And I think that there's a deep shame somehow. And I, I think it's misplaced. Like, why not continue to believe? But I think disappointment is often the thing that gets in the way of my patience the most. And it's something, it's like a short-circuiting of desire. You'll, like, you know, I failed, so I'm not going to try again. Right. Yeah, yeah. So put us all on the couch. How do we get out of this? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I wish I had, um, I wish I had the answer. You know, the younger generation, I would try to just put my faith in them and see where they're at because they think that they are less disappointed. I mean, they're very, very disappointed, but their disappointment isn't the disappointment that we have. They're disappointed in us and the world that we've handed them. But I somehow think that they have a resilience. I mean, my teenage patients are incredible in their capacity at this point to think things through. And I, I really want to listen to them. When I was doing a piece of the New Republic last year about DSA, I interviewed one person. I said, what, what are your thoughts for the long-term strategy of DSA? And she said, I don't think there is a long-term. Hmm. Like, so there is this, also this gloom about the future. It's going to be climate crisis and social collapse. And to hear a young person, young person, late 20s, early 30s, talking like this was... Um, Shocking to me because you know, when you're young, you're supposed to be full of hope and dreams of the future. There is some material basis for this gloom. No, I mean, I hear it all the time. I mean, they, there's this, a lot of people think the world is going to be over in 30 years. And some part of them, like, really, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I don't walk around with this. In 30 years, the world is done. And um, some of the younger kids do. They say, like, I'm not going to make it till my old age. I'm not going to have children. I hear it all the time. But somehow they feel to me, and maybe this seems completely counterintuitive, less defeated. There's still like an, an I mean, maybe it's just because they're young, but there's an energy nevertheless. And I'm interested in that. Yeah, because you know, ta- we were talking earlier about melancholia as being disarming. Right. But in this case, their melancholia about the future, which is not just coming from within, doesn't seem to inhibit any kind of positive action. Yeah. No. Yeah. What does that say about the psychology? I, I this mean, kind of political melancholia. It means that they're more realistic than we are. They're more properly realistic, which means that both you can see the problem and you can dream, not just that you see the problem and collapse or dream and refuse to see the problem. I think somehow they're putting both of those things in place at the same, at the same time. That was Jameson Webster, a psychoanalyst based in New York. This was recorded in her echoey office, and audio filters can only do so much to correct those things. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of For the Love of Money, a song originally recorded by the OJs and covered here by Defunct from 1982. Till next week, bye.
Mar.